Chapter Sixteen of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Sixteen Terry Comes. The moment I caught sight of Terry as he swung off the train, I felt involuntarily that my troubles were near their end. His sharp, eager face, with its firm jaw and quick eye, inspired one with the feeling that he could find the bottom of any mystery. It was with a deep breath of relief that I held out my hand. "'Hello, old man. How are you?' he exclaimed, with a smile of cordiality as he grasped it and then recalling the gravity of the situation, he, with some difficulty, pulled a sober face. I'm sorry that we meet again under such sad circumstances, he added perfunctorily. I suppose you think I've meddled enough in your affairs already, and on my word I intended to stay out of this, but, of course, I've been watching it in the papers." partly because it was interesting and partly because I knew you. It struck me yesterday afternoon, as I was thinking things over, that you weren't making much headway and might like a little help. So I induced the post-dispatch to send down their best man. I hope I shall get at the truth. He paused a moment and looked at me sharply. Do you want me to stay? I will go back if you'd rather have me. I was instantly ashamed of my distrust of the afternoon. Whatever might be Terry's failings, I could not doubt, as I looked into his face, that his Irish heart was in the right place. I am not afraid of the truth, I returned steadily. If you can discover it, for heaven's sake, do so. That's what I'm paid for, said Terry. The post-dispatch doesn't deal in fiction any more than it can help. As we climbed into the carriage, he added briskly, It's a horrible affair. The details, as I have them from the papers, are not full enough, but you can tell them to me as we drive along. I should have laughed had I been feeling less anxious. His greeting was so entirely characteristic, in the way he shuffled through the necessary condolences and jumped, with such evident relish, to the gruesome details. As I gathered up the reins and backed away from the hitching post, Terry broke out with, Here, hold on a minute, where are you going? Back to Four Pools, I said in some surprise. I thought you want to unpack your things and get settled. Haven't much time to get settled, he laughed. I have an engagement in New York the day after tomorrow. How about the cave? Is it too late to visit it now? Well, I said dubiously, it's ten miles across the mountains and pretty heavy roads. It would be dark before we got there. As far as that goes, we could visit the cave at night as well as in the daytime, but I want to examine the neighborhood and interview some of the people. So I suppose, he added with an impatient sigh, we'll have to wait till morning. And now, where's this young Gaylord? He's in the Kennisburg jail. And where's that? About three miles from here, and six miles from the plantation. 
Ah, suppose we pay him a visit first. There are one or two points concerning his whereabouts on the night of the robbery and his actions on the day of the murder that I should like to have him clear up. I smiled slightly as I turned the horses' heads toward Kennersburg. Radnor, in his present uncommunicative frame of mind, was not likely to afford Terry much satisfaction. "'There isn't any time to waste,' he added, as we drove along. "'Just let me have your account of everything that happened, beginning with the first appearance of the ghost.' I briefly sketched the situation at Four Pools as I had found it on my arrival, and the events preceding the robbery and the murder. Terry interrupted me once or twice with questions. He was particularly interested in the three-cornered situation concerning Radnor, Polly Mathers, and Jim Madison, and I was as brief as possible in my replies. I did not care to make Polly the heroine of a Sunday feature article. He was also persistent in regard to Jefferson's past. I told him all I knew, added the story of my own suspicions, and ended by producing the telegram proving his alibi. Hm, said Terry, folding it thoughtfully, and putting it in his pocket. It had occurred to me, too, that Jeff might be our man. This puts an end to the theory that he personally committed the murder. There are some very peculiar points about this case, he added. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that Radnor Gaylord is any more guilty of the crime than I am, or I shouldn't have come. But it won't do for me to jump at conclusions until I get more data. I suppose you realize what it is the peculiarly significant point about the murder— you mean Moses' disappearance? Well, no, I didn't have that in mind. That's significant enough, to be sure, but nothing but what you would naturally expect. The crime was committed, if your data is straight, either by him or in his presence, and, of course, he disappears. You could scarcely have expected to find him sitting there waiting for you in either case. You mean Radnor's behaviour on the day of the murder and his refusal to explain it? I asked uneasily. No, Terry laughed. That may be significant, and it may not. I strongly suspect that it is not. What I mean is the peculiar place in which the crime was committed. No person on earth could have foreseen that Colonel Gaylord would go alone into that cave. There is an accidental element about the murder. It must have been committed on the spur of the moment by someone who had not premeditated it, at least at that time. This is the point we must keep in mind. He sat for a few moments staring at the dashboard with a puzzled frown. Broadly speaking, he said slowly, I have found that you can place the motive of every willful murder under one of three heads, Averance, fear, or revenge. Suppose we consider the first. Could Averance have been the motive for Colonel Gaylord's murder? The body had not been robbed, you tell me. No, we found a gold watch and considerable money in the pockets. Then, you see, if the motives were Averance, it could not have been immediate gain. That throws out the possibility that the murderer was some unknown thief who merely took advantage of a chance opportunity. 
If we are to conceive of avarice as the motive, the crime must have been committed by some person who would benefit more remotely by the Colonel's death. Did anyone owe him money that you know of? There is no record of anything of the sort, and he was a careful business man. I do not think he would have loaned money without making some memorandum of it. He held several mortgages, but they, of course, revert to his heirs. I understand that Radnor was the only heir. He is, practically. There are a few minor bequests to the servants and to some old friends. Did the servants know that anything was to go to them? No, I don't think they did. And this cat I mows, did he receive a share? Yes, larger than any of the others. It seems that Colonel Gaylord, at least, had confidence in him. And how about the other son? Did he know that he was to be disinherited? I think that the Colonel made it plain at the time they parted. Terry shook his head and frowned. This disinheriting business is bad. I don't like it, and I never shall. It stirs up more ill-feeling than anything I know of. Jeff seems to have proved an alibi, however, and we will dismiss him for the present. Rad has always sympathized with Jeff, I said. Then, continued Terry, if the servants did not know the contents of the will, and we have all of the data, Radnor is the only one who could knowingly have benefited by the Colonel's death. Suppose we take a glance at motives of fear. Do you know of anyone who had reason to stand in fear of the Colonel? He wasn't oppressing anybody. No damaging evidence against any person in his possession. Not levying blackmail, was he? Not that I know of, and I smiled slightly. It's not likely, mused Terry, but you never can tell what is going to come out when a respectable man is dead. And now, as to revenge. With a man of Colonel Gaylord's character, there were likely to be a good many people who owed him a bad turn. He seems to have been a peppery old gentleman. It's quite on the cars that he had some enemies among his neighbours. No, so far as I can discover, he was very popular in the neighbourhood. The indignation over his death was something tremendous. When it first got out that Rad was accused of the crime, there was even talk of lynching him. So, servants all appeared to be fond of him. The old family servants were broken-hearted at the news of his death. They had been, for the most part, born and bred on the place, and in spite of his occasional harshness, they loved the colonel with the old-fashioned devotion of the slave toward his master. He was in his way exceedingly kind to them. When old Uncle Eben died, my uncle watched all night by his bed. It's a queer situation, Terry muttered, and relapsed into silence till we reached the jail. It was an ivy-covered brick building set back from the street and shaded by trees, rather more homelike than the tombs. Terry commented. Shouldn't mind taking a rest in it myself. We found Radnor pacing up and down the small room in which he was confined like a caged animal. The anxiety and seclusion were beginning to tell on his nerves. 
He faced about quickly as the door opened, and at sight of me his face lightened. He was growing pathetically pleased at having anyone with whom he could talk. Rad, I said with an air of cheerfulness, which was not entirely assumed. I hope we're nearing the end of our trouble at last. This is Mr. Patton, Terry Patton of New York, who has come to help me unravel the mystery. It was an unfortunate beginning. I had told him before of Terry's connection with the Patterson-Pratt affair. He had half held out his hand as I commenced to speak, but he dropped it now with a slight frown. I don't think I care to be interviewed, he remarked curtly. I have nothing to say for the benefit of the post-dispatch. You'd better, said Terry, imperturbably. The post-dispatch prints the truth, you know, and some of the other papers don't. The truth's always the best in the end. I merely want to find out what information you can give me in regard to the ghost. I will tell you nothing, Radnor growled. I am not giving statements to the press. Mr. Gaylord, said Terry, with an assumption of gentle patience, if you will excuse my referring to what I know must be a painful subject, would you mind telling me if the suspicion has ever crossed your mind that your brother Jefferson may have returned secretly, have obstructed the bonds from the safe, and two weeks later, quite accidentally, have met Colonel Gaylord alone in the cave. Radnor turned upon him in a sudden fury. I thought for a moment he was going to strike him, and I sprang forward and caught his arm. The Gaylords may be a bad lot, but they are not liars, and they are not cowards. They do not run away. They stand by the consequences of their acts. Terry bowed gravely. Just one more question, and I am through. What happened to you that day in the cave? It's none of your damned business. I glanced apprehensively at Terry, uncertain as to how he would take this, but he did not appear to resent it. He looked Radnor over with an air of interested approval, and his smile slowly broadened. I'm glad to see your game, he remarked. I tell you I don't know who killed my father any more than you do, Radnor cried. You needn't come here asking me questions. Go and find the murderer if you can, and if you can't, hang me and be done with it. I don't know that we need to take up any more of Mr. Gaylord's time, said Terry to me. I've found out about all I wish to know. We'll drop in again, he added reassuringly to Radnor. Good afternoon. As we went out of the door, he turned back a moment and added with a slightly sharp undertone in his voice, "'And the next time I come, Gaylord, you'll shake hands.' Fumbling in his pocket, he drew out my telegram from the police commissioner and tossed it on to the cot. "'In the meantime, there's something for you to think about. Good-bye.' "'Do you mean,' I asked, as we climbed back into the carriage, that Radnor did believe Jeff guilty? Well, not exactly. I fancy he will be relieved, though, to find that Jeff was three thousand miles away when the murder was committed. Only once during the drive home did Terry exhibit any interest in his surroundings, and that was when we passed through the village of Lambert Corners. 
He made me slow down to a walk, and explain the purpose of every one of the dozen or so buildings along the square. At Miller's place, he suddenly decided that he needed some stamps, and I waited outside while he obtained them together with a drink in the private back room. Nothing like getting the lay of the land, he remarked as he climbed back into the carriage. That Miller is a picturesque old party. He thinks it's all Tommy Rot that Radnor Gaylord had anything to do with the crime. Rad's a customer of his, and it's a downright imposition to lock the boy up where he can't spend money. For the rest of the drive, Terry kept silence, and I did not venture to interrupt it. I had come to have a superstitious feeling that his silences were pretentious. It was not until I stopped to open the gate into our own home lane that he suddenly burst out with the question, Where did the Mathers people live? A couple of miles farther down the pike. They have no connection whatever with the business and don't know a thing about it. Ah, perhaps not. Would it be too late to drive over tonight? Yes, said I, it would. Oh, very well, said he, good-humouredly. There'll be time enough in the morning. I let this pass without comment, but on one thing I was resolved, and that was that Polly Mathers should never fall into Terry's clutches. There are a lot of questions I want to ask about your ghost, but I'll wait till I get my bearings and my dinner, he added with a laugh. There wasn't any dining car on that train, and I breakfasted early and admitted lunch. Here we are, I said, as we came in sight of the house. The cook is expecting us. So that is the Gaylord House, is it? A fine old place. When was it built? About 1830, I imagine. Let me see. Sheridan rode up the Shenandoah Valley and burned everything in sight. How did this place happen to escape? I don't know just how it did. You see, it's a mile back from the main road, and well hidden by the trees. I suppose they were in a hurry, and it escaped their attention. And that row of shanties down there are the haunted negro cabins. Ah, Terry rose in his seat and scanned them eagerly. We'll have a look at them as soon as I get something to eat. Really, a farm isn't so bad, he remarked as he stepped out upon the portico. And is this Solomon? he inquired as the old negro came forward to take his bag. Well, Solomon, I've been reading about you in the papers. You and I are going to have a talk by and by. End of chapter 16